0: Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 20. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that we've been, we've been in the book of Genesis. Uh, we, we've made it through the flood story, through the Tower of Babel story, into Genesis chapter 11, and we're taking a, a break from Genesis uh, because we know it'll be a, we'll be a long time in Genesis. So we're going to take some breaks and we're going to intersperse that with the book of John. So we're going to begin the book of John this morning, and uh, I thought about putting as the Scripture reading uh, the Gospel of John, but I thought that might freak some of you out. So we're not going to read the whole Gospel right now, uh, but we're actually going to read a few verses from the end of the Gospel, because we're going to be looking, we're going to be thinking about the Gospel as a whole, however. However. So let me, let me read uh, John 20, 30 to 31, and then John 21, 24, and 25. Uh, before, before I do that, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, for every, every book, every chapter, every verse, every word in your word. We pray, Father, that as we come to the book of John this morning and begin to think about the message of the gospel of John, uh, Father, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would uh, fill our hearts by your spirit, give us understanding, give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive everything that you have to say in this book. Teach us, Father, uh, right now by your spirit, through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then the last two verses of the book, John 21. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. How do you know How do you know what is true? It's actually a difficult question when you think about it. Uh, I know many of us will say in our scientific age, we know what is true if we see it with our eyes, if we can touch it with our hands, if it is measurable or repeatable or testable. And while I appreciate that that is the answer that we give, that that seeing is believing, uh, it's actually a bit naive When it comes to how we actually live day by day, the majority of things that you believe, things that you know, you know not because you have seen them or touched them or measured them. I haven't measured the circumference of the earth. I haven't touched a a Wi-Fi signal with my hands. I've, I've never seen the Australian peacock sparkle muffin spider. In person, anyway. But I believe that the earth is indeed round and that Wi-Fi signals connect to my computer and that as unbelievable as its name is, the Australian peacock sparkle muffin spider does indeed exist. Why do I believe these things? I haven't seen them. I haven't touched them. I sure can't explain them. Now, I've seen pictures, but pictures can be faked. Maybe the Australian Peacock Sparkle Muffin Spider is a hoax. It certainly sounds like one. So why do I, why do we believe things that we have not ourselves seen or touched or tested? Are we being naive or is there more going on? The Gospel of John was written for one clear reason, but it really answers three questions. The reason is found in John 20, verses that we read a moment ago, but I'll read them again. John 20, 30 to 31, where John tells us, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But to get us there, he really answers three questions along the way. Uh, Who is Jesus? How do we know? And why does it matter? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, We'll talk about how we know first. So I'm just going to give an overview of what the Gospel of John uh, says about these three things. And so we'll see how we know, who he is, and why it matters. First, how we know. I saw it on the Internet isn't really a good enough answer. Which is why I will always have a question about the Australian Peacock Sparkle Muffin Spider until Tommy, our resident entomologist, confirms for me its existence. But notice, I still will likely never see such a creature in person in my life, but I will be more sure of its existence because I trust Tommy more than I do the Internet. Most of what we believe, we believe based on the personal testimony of other people. And think about it. I mean, for me, that includes such things as how many continents are in the world. I haven't visited them all. Who my parents are. While I was technically there, I really wasn't paying attention when I was born. And the fact that dark chocolate is good for me, which if you know better, please don't disconfirm. You might say, well, there are official documents which can confirm or contradict all of these kinds of things, but documents are written by people after all, and so documents, even official documents, are still another form of personal testimony, this time written personal testimony. And you might say, okay, uh, while we believe many things because of personal testimony, those things are at least verifiable, if I wanted to verify them. I could do it. I could verify it myself if I wanted to. And that's fine for some things, but that's actually not true for all things. History, for example, is never independently verifiable. Uh, We are dependent upon the testimony of those who were there and the evidence that they've left behind, much of which comes in the form of written personal testimony. But we weren't there. We believe what we believe about history because of the personal testimony of other people. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying everything you thought you knew, you actually don't know. What I'm saying is that personal testimony is a valid means of learning about the world. Much of what you know, you know on the basis of someone's personal testimony. That is actually the way the world works. Uh, the, The question that you need to ask, of course, is always is this person's testimony valid? Is this witness credible? Do I believe the Internet when it presents such a fanciful creature as the Sparkle Muffin spider? Now, this, by the way, is why lying is so terrible according to Scripture. When people lie, it undermines our knowledge of God's world and even, in part, our ability to discern truth from error, fact from fiction, news from fake news. Now, I spend so much time uh, talking about this because the Gospel of John is all about testimony. Some word for witness or testimony is used about 47 times in John's Gospel. Within John, you have at least six different strands of testimony mentioned. The testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of individuals who see Jesus and His miracles and share that with others, the testimony of Jesus Himself, The testimony of the Father to Jesus through the Spirit, or through Scripture, and the testimony of the Spirit to Jesus through Jesus' miracles. And, of course, you have the testimony of John himself, which we will come to in a moment. The Gospel begins early on with the the witness or the testimony of John the Baptist, who, who was not the light but bore witness to the light. He said in John 1:34, "I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God." Now notice, John saw and bore witness. And so the basis of testimony is someone's personal experience, in this case John's, John the Baptist's. The testimony fills the gap for those of us who have not had that same personal experience. The Samaritan woman in John chapter four bore witness to Jesus. And because of her testimony, many Samaritans believed. And notice there you have the end or the goal of testimony, belief in that which is testified to. The trajectory of testimony is belief, knowledge based on the testimony of a credible witness. It's the kind of knowledge that a judge seeks when he calls witnesses into a court of law. Multiple times in John, people ask for a sign, You see that in chapter 2, verse 18. You see it in chapter 6, verse 30, and other places. Uh, They want a sign so that they can see and believe. And and Jesus uh, chastises them uh, because they refuse to believe based on his testimony itself. Uh, John 8, 14, even if I do bear witness about myself, Jesus says, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. In John 4:48, Jesus said, "Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe." In another gospel, Jesus puts the, the condemnation more harshly. He says, in Matthew 12:39, he says, "An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign." And yet, John is highlighting a a different aspect of our understanding of signs. It's not that signs themselves are bad. Jesus never says that. And in fact, John will present seven specific signs of Jesus. But not everyone can and does see them. Life can't be lived by signs alone. In fact, when we get to the end of the gospel, Thomas. Uh, who is often referred to as doubting Thomas, but should probably be referred to as confessing Thomas because that's what he does at the end of the gospel, Uh, Thomas wants to see the, the nail prints in Jesus' hands. And when he does, he bows in worship. And in John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That, of course, would be all of us. What is the basis of belief of those who have not seen? Well, it's the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, like John himself. And and we should say a few things about John and his testimony. We call this book the the Gospel of John. We are beginning to study the Gospel of John, or the Gospel according to John. Gospel means good news. Uh, This book is uh, uh, not about the good news of John, but it's about the good news of Jesus, as John tells the story. And how do we know it was John? Uh, The the easiest answer to that question is actually tradition. Uh, Early on, Christians, uh, Christian pastors and Christian theologians, those who would have known, uh, directly known disciples of John, uh, attributed this gospel to John, the brother of James. But there are indications in in the text as well. Uh, One quirk of this gospel is that John, the disciple, is never mentioned by name. Which is odd because Peter, James, and John in the Gospels are the inner circle of Jesus. So why never mention the disciple John? One explanation for his absence here is that he's actually the one writing the story and he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. And then there are frequent references to the one whom Jesus loved, which many believe is John's way of referring to himself indirectly. Now, some people uh, might think, well, how could John say that, the one whom Jesus loved? How could he give himself that kind of an honorific title? Who does he think he is? How could he specially claim the love of Jesus? But actually, it could be something quite different, just the opposite, in fact. It could be John's way of marveling that Jesus would love him, even him. In that case, this is a reference not to John's supposed special status, but to the enormity of Jesus' love for sinners, even sinners like John. Now, the reason this phrase, the one whom Jesus loved, seems to refer to John is because of his special place at the table at dinner next to Jesus in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper. It's a place that from other gospels seems clear would have been reserved for either Peter or John. And since Peter is named throughout this book, that leaves only John to be the one referred to. These references to the one whom Jesus loved uh, continue until the end of the book, and after the last mention of the one whom Jesus loved, we read this in John twenty-one twenty-four: This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And so if it wasn't John, it was some other disciple who was close to Jesus, who sat next to him at the Last Supper, and who bore witness to what he saw. Of course, John does go on to bear witness to Jesus, even apart from this gospel, uh, in the book of 1 John. Uh, 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 goes like this. We heard it earlier, uh, but it's worth hearing again. John begins this letter, 1 John, like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and have heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, John, John the disciple, had a real in-person, face-to-face experience of Jesus. And he testifies to that experience. First John, of course, sounds a bit like the Gospel of John. It uses the same kind of language and imagery, and it's reasonable to believe that the same person wrote them both. And so what we have in the Gospel of John is the, the written personal testimony of one who was very close to Jesus, one of his inner circle, maybe the disciple who was the closest to Jesus during his earthly life. And we get to listen in on what this person has to say about Jesus. That is pretty spectacular. We get firsthand testimony to the person and work of Jesus. How do we know who Jesus is? Well, because we have firsthand testimony, a written record of someone close to Jesus bearing witness to what he saw and heard. And as we read through the gospel, we'll see that John is going to corroborate his witness with other witnesses like John the Baptist, like the Samaritan woman, and of course the witness of each person of the Trinity one by one throughout the gospel. God himself testifies to his Son. And the question is, who is this Son, and will we receive the Father's testimony? So we turn to our next point. That's how we know Second, who Jesus is. There are good storytellers and there are bad storytellers. Uh, In Marvel's uh, Ant-Man, the character Louise has this way of telling stories, which, if you've seen that movie, is particularly engaging because of movie magic, except that he wants to include details that are completely irrelevant. And maybe you've been listening to someone tell a story and you thought, okay, why are you telling me this point? Are all of these details really necessary? Well, the Apostle John is trying to communicate something specific, and he is doing that in actually a fairly artful way. First, in his selection of details, he leaves things out, right? Note John 20, verse 30. He tells us, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Or John 21, 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Notice what John is saying. He's saying, Jesus did a lot of stuff. And I had to be selective when I wrote. I couldn't write everything. I had to pick and choose what stories I was going to include. But this selection was not arbitrary, right? It was purposeful. John 20, verse 31. After he says, Jesus did... Many things, not written here, he adds, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is painting a portrait of Jesus, and he wants us to see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and he wants us to believe in him. Second, John is is communicating something specific, not, not just in the stories that he selects, but in his presentation of those stories. John picks out particular stories, miracles, interactions, sayings, and he relates them in a particular way. In fact, it seems that John, as many biblical writers have done before him, grouped or presented things in sevens as a reference to creation, as a reference to a sign of completion, as a reference to the new creation that is coming in Jesus. And of course, sometimes he, has, he, he adds one, he adds an eighth, which is a kind of climactic, one up, even on creation That points to the new creation that has come in Jesus. And so John records seven feasts and seven discourses in Jesus' public ministry and seven signs or miracles and seven I am statements. But then there are these climactic eighth. An eighth discourse in private with his disciples, what we call the farewell discourse. A climactic eighth, I am, when Jesus is arrested in the garden. And there is, uh, of course, the climactic sign of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so John is, is choosing his stories carefully. He's composing his story carefully. And that's not to say that it wasn't true, of course. But again, by the nature of writing something down, you have to choose what to include, what to leave out, and how to put it all together. Every gospel writer, of course, is telling us something about Jesus. Uh, they, they are the biographies of Jesus, as it were. And while while we can't limit what they, uh, each says to one thing, each does have kind of a unique emphasis. So Matthew wants to see G- us to see Jesus as the Jewish king, and Mark wants us to see Jesus as the suffering servant, and Luke as the one who sympathizes with sinners. What does John want us to see about Jesus? Now, there are quite a few things that we'll, we'll see as we go through the gospel as a whole, but three things stand out, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is man, and that Jesus is the Messiah. First, Jesus is God. John 1.1 1, 1, right, begins with this reality, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We find out as we read that this Word has become incarnate, that is enfleshed in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the living Word, and John says, the Word was God. Jesus in John is pictured as constantly talking about and interacting with God as His Father. When Jesus called God His Father, it was clear to His contemporaries that this was not some generic God is the Father of us all type statement. In fact, when Jesus calls God his father, his contemporaries tried to kill him. They try to try to stone him for blasphemy because it was obvious that he was making himself out to be God. And so John chapter 5 verse 18 says this, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In John chapter 10 verse 30, Jesus goes so far as to say, I and the Father are one. And immediately, his own people pick up stones to stone him again. Jesus is the Word who was with God and was God. He is the Son of the Father and one with the Father. And in John seventeen five, we read, uh, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And sometimes uh, liberal theologians have denied that Jesus had any sense that he was special or unique, but this seems to be a pretty clear statement, doesn't it? When he says, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, he refers to his pre-incarnate state. I was with you before the world existed, before creation even happened, Jesus says. I was there with you. Finally, uh, John paints Jesus as the I am, the I am. There are seven I am statements in John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, Jesus says. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And then there are these climactic statements, again, simply where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Not I am something, just I am. And then three times at his arrest, he says the same thing. It's translated in in, uh, your Bibles, I am he, but again, it's, it's I am. I am is the translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. It's God's name. Jesus claims divinity when he takes this name on his lips. He claims to be the I am. And again, his own pick up stones to stone him. Jesus is God the Word, the Son of the Father, the I Am. Now, stop just there for a minute and and think about it. Here is a man, John, who wrote this book, who knew Jesus, who walked with Jesus for three years. And his conclusion was, Jesus is God, the Word of God, the Son of the Father, who existed before the world began. Now, I've spent a, a lot of time with a lot of people, And I've never once been tempted to think that someone was anything more than a broken, flawed, sinful human being like myself. Now you could say, well, John was crazy or he was out of his mind. He was hallucinating. He was deluded. It was wishful thinking. But before you do that, you've got to look at the evidence yourself. You've got to read the book. You've got to hear John's personal eyewitness testimony to who Jesus is and was. John's conclusion is Jesus is God. Second, Jesus is man. Uh, Jesus is the eternal word made flesh. Again, you you find this in all of the Gospels, but it seems emphasized in John. John doesn't give us a lopsided picture of who Jesus is. The Son of God became a man. He, He didn't cease to be God, mind you. He is still the eternally existent I am, but God took to himself humanity. We see him interact with his mom. He gets thirsty and asks for water. He gets sad and weeps. He gets anxious and prays for the Father to make things right. In many ways, John presents the most clearly divine Jesus of any of the Gospels, but he balances that. He also presents the most truly human Jesus, the one who became flesh, became a man to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus is God, Jesus is man, third, Jesus is the Messiah. John says he wrote that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. God didn't come to earth to stroll through the fields or just to find out what it's like. He didn't come on holiday. He didn't come to slip in and slip out unnoticed. Jesus came as the Christ, which is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. Jesus came to be the Savior, Jesus came to be, as John the Baptist testified, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so what we have in this book, the Gospel of John, is John's own personal eyewitness testimony to Jesus as the God-man who came as the Messiah to be the Savior of the world. And that's how we know this eyewitness testimony that God has preserved for us in His Word, and that's who He is, God in the flesh, come as the Savior. Third, why it matters. What difference does it all make? Now, again, if if Tommy tells me that the Australian peacock sparkle muffin spider is real, uh, it will be my new favorite spider. I've never had a favorite spider before, so that's kind of cool, but it really won't change my life. But if I believe the testimony of John about Jesus, everything changes. As we read John's gospel, we we are each confronted with a question, do you believe this? And belief is all over John's gospel. Some see the signs and believe, others see the signs and refuse to believe. At one point in John 11, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that question confronts each one of us as we read. Do you believe this? Do you believe John's testimony? Do you believe in Jesus as the God-man who has come as the Messiah, the Lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world? Do you believe this? And if you do, at least four things are promised you in this gospel. There are more than four, but there are at least these four. Life, joy, peace, and hope, which are four pretty big things. Jesus repeatedly promises life to those who believe him. We've seen it already in, in John twenty thirty one. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We see it again in places like John 6, verse 40. For Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice eternal life here is different from the resurrection life to come. Eternal life is something those who believe in Jesus have now, today. When you come to faith in Jesus, God gives you a new kind of life, life in Jesus, present resurrection life. And Jesus at times refers to it as the new birth or being born of God. And this new life wakes you up to, to new ways of seeing and living, ways that take God into account. This new life is a life of obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. This new life is also a life of peace. Uh, Jesus' people, he will say, are about to face sorrow, difficulty, trials, even death. But they can experience peace in the midst of that. John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why are they not to be afraid? Well, Jesus goes on in John 16 to say this, I have said these things to you that, you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. He has gotten victory over death in his resurrection. That is our peace, that our king has conquered the enemy. It's not that everything in our lives is good. No, Jesus says, in the world, you will have trouble. But take heart. He has overcome the world. This new life is also a life of joy, right? In Jesus' farewell discourse, joy is mentioned seven times. Again, they face sorrow, difficulty, trial, death, but their joy is not dependent on what happens to them in this life. In John 15, 11, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Even though they suffer and struggle, even though they are persecuted and killed, they can have joy. Because their joy is not in their circumstances, but in Jesus and his resurrection. They know he has gotten victory over death, which means they have victory over death, and nothing can take away that joy. Finally, this new life is a life of hope. Again, John six forty. Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Resurrection life, we might say, has two parts. Uh, uh, we, we are raised now internally. We receive new spiritual life, the life of the Spirit, when we come to faith in Christ. But we will be raised in the future externally uh, we will receive new physical life, the life of our bodies. We will be raised from the dead just as Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. This is, of course, why, why Jesus' resurrection gives us joy and peace because where Jesus is, there we will be also. John fourteen three, he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. When we get there, we, we, when we get to that passage in John 14, we'll talk about exactly what that might mean, but it's clear that Jesus will, on the last day, take us bodily to be with him, or rather, he will come bodily to be with us when he raises us from the dead. Jesus prays to his Father in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. See, we will be with Jesus. We will rise in our bodies as he rose in his body and we will see him face to face. That is our hope. That is the promise of the resurrection. That is our hope. That is our joy. That is our peace in the midst of trouble here and now. Our Father loves us because of Jesus. He is caring for us because of Jesus and he will raise us up on the last day because of Jesus. If all of these things maybe sound a bit nebulous or abstract or ethereal, uh, let me encourage you to come back. Come back each week as we dig into the specifics of the gospel of John, as we chip away at his testimony to Jesus, and as we learn to believe in him, and so receive eternal life, joy, and peace, and the hope of the resurrection on the last day. Would you pray with me? Our Father, help us to see Jesus in all of His glory. Help us to see Him in Your Word. Help us to see Him in the the testimony of John and John the Baptist and the Samaritan woman and all the rest as we read through this gospel. Help us to see Him as the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. Help us to believe in Him. Father, help us to find life and joy and peace and hope in Him.